Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. And I want to warn you a bit. It's a little bit more complicated or, and actually I'm going pretty high. I'm not going to dig real, real deep on this chapter. But even on the title, you'll notice on the sermon notes, The Return of Jesus, Part 1. Today we come into a passage that really is, that many believe is, is talking about a future event that are going to take place in our lives. And, and to be honest with you though, this chapter is a, is a hard one to preach and uh, because there's the challenges, there's so many different interpretations of the end times, and I felt like I was even in quicksand of, as I was studying here this week here, and just looking at some of the different views, but we need to realize that Matthew, Luke, and, and Mark, they all record this incident, and as people look at them, very devout, godly scholars disagree on its interpretation, and how one interprets these signs if it's forward or, or, or if it's just for the disciples. But in seminary, I remember taking a class called hermeneutics. And uh, it was one of the more helpful classes. But it, there's really an application to understanding a passage like this today in the area of hermeneutics. Just to tease you a, a second, just real quickly, if you were to look at Scripture and ask the question, what is the meaning of the text? What does it really mean? And there are three options as to what determines the meaning. It could be the words on the page. Is it the words alone that determine the meaning of the passage? Or is it the author who wrote the words? Do they determine the meaning? Or, third one, does the reader determine the meaning of the passage? And how you, what you choose in those three options there really plays out in how you read scripture, how you look at interpreting a particular passage as well. And I'll be honest with you, it's a challenge. Because in that, you understand the Holy Spirit gave us this chapter. It is for us. We're to apply it to our lives. But again, so many people disagree. And while the Holy Spirit is infallible, as he gave that to the authors of, of this, to Mark and to the different authors of the New Testament, recognize that as we interpret this. I'm, I'm a fallible being. I don't necessarily are going to get everything just right in terms of its interpretation. And most of Scripture, you understand, we agree. There's more agreement. When it comes, though, to some key passages, it's hard sometimes to agree. And one of the challenges to nuance to this, you understand uh, in evangelical churches like ours, that in that interpretation of who determines meaning, we would fall back into that the author determines the meaning of the text as he wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you realize this, but liberal theology says that the reader gets to determine the meaning of a passage. And in doing so, the reader approaches this almost like art. What does it mean to me? Uh, you catch where they're going. So the context, if our culture is changing, then the interpretation, the meaning of the passage can change. And we believe as an evangelical, as a free church, that meaning is rooted in history and that it's there in stone that God has inspired it. 
And it's, 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 we, they get the application, but its purpose is really in stone. So today we come to this question, though. When will Jesus return? Now here's the deal. By next Sunday, by the end of next Sunday, I'm going to give you a date. We're going to have the date that Jesus is going to return. So what you can do, plan on this week, is you can go out and figure out how you're going to spend your retirement account. And uh, you can get the kids ready, and you're going to take the dream vacation of a lifetime. And you're not going to have to pay for it. Okay, recognize that. And you're not going to have to worry about everything because we're going to give you the date next week. Okay, when is Jesus coming back? Well, let me throw the first verse. I'm going to jump toward the end of the chapter. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So you might want to wait on the vacation just a second, okay? But let me give you the principle out of that that we have to kind of set as a foundation for this chapter. Number one, if you're following along in the outline there in the bulletin, I said it this way. God holds the future in his hands. God is the one that knows the future. Now, understand, if you go to, like, Wikipedia, and you punch into there people who predicted the end times. You can come up with 40, I, I looked at it quickly, 46 names dating back to 500 A.D. who put very specific predictions as to when Jesus is going to return. But it's clear from the meaning of this verse that not only did the angels, they don't know the date, but also Jesus, at that point in history, as a man, the Father hadn't revealed when he was going to come back, when the Son was going to come back again. So you just might want to hold off on that dream vacation to Fargo till another time as well. But looking forward, you know, I, I think of some guy in the future who's going to be predicting that date and he's going to be at, at a book signing somewhere, sitting down with a long line behind him, and all of a sudden the, the trumpets are going to go off and he's going to be really surprised that Jesus is coming back. And it's going to end kind of interestingly. But we've been recognized this. We have been in the last year, last days for about 2,000 years. For about 2,000 years. But let me give you one more conviction about this chapter. Understand what's going on here. This is what I believe, that there are two telescopes that come within this chapter. One of them, the telescope, is directed, as Jesus speaks these words, to the disciples and their immediate future. But he also has a telescope that goes beyond the time of the disciples that points to a future date which will include the understanding of where the end times is going to be for us as a church, as for the Christians in this world today. So it's with that conviction you understand that I believe there's a duality in this passage for us that we got to understand that he's prophesying both for the present in terms of them, the disciples, but also for us in the future. Now, what you're going to get frustrated at, I, I know you're going to get frustrated with me because I'm not going to dig and basically tell you um, and going to go down that path of the future and lay out every nuance. Now, I don't know if you realize, if you look at the back of your bulletin notes, 
you're going to notice there one thing, that there are, I listed four different views of the end times. These are the major ones, but, but catch this, even within each individual view, there are a whole bunch of nuances to it. They don't even agree necessarily on the individual views at times. And I actually left out a fourth view that has, was around earlier. It's kind of disappeared to some extent. It's not real popular today, but it's called the hyperpreterist view. And, and the, th this view is this, that basically Revelation was fulfilled by the time of about 400 A.D. And, and that Jesus actually came back at about 70 A.D., and this is, that was a hyper-preterist view. It's the least held uh, version of, of the end times, and I, I think it kind of leans toward heresy, and they really don't have a basis for it as well. But here's what I want to do. I'm just going to walk through the text, and I'm going to make some comments, and we're going to want to apply it to our lives really at the end. So Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So now they're leaving. They're walking out of the temple. They've walked up a mountain of Mount Olivet. And one of the disciples says, Jesus, check out that building over there. And that was the temple looking back. Look at the sight of that. Isn't that gorgeous? Now, catch this. They had just left it. And there were some testy confrontations that had taken place with the leaders. Remember, he had driven out the, the money changers and people that were selling the sacrifices. And he had scolded the, the leaders and he actually condemned them. And, and that's what he, where he left. And he's walking up this mountain. And I just can't help but wonder if the disciples were just kind of a little sheepish at that moment going, what do we say now? He had just done all these things. And I just wonder if they were a little worried about what's going on with this Jesus guy here as we're following him. But you catch this in that this building was magnificent. When they write about it back at that time, King Herod had had it built. And it was one of the wonders of the world back then in all its beauty. Matter of fact, Josephus, a historian back then, he wrote about some of the stones on the foundations of that uh, temple. Some of the stones were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. And I kind of asked the question, how did they move them without big cranes? And how did they push them in place? But understand that it was a, it was a magnificent building. But look at the response of Jesus in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he agrees it's beautiful. And he goes, Guys, it's going down. The temple's going to be destroyed. And I think that would have disturbed them. See, there had to have been some concern on their part and go, what in the world is going to take place? That's, this thing is going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. It left them wondering. But look at verse 3. You'll notice here that they actually believe him. They're not doubting him. 
Look how it goes. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? There they believe him. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They believe it's coming. What's the sign? So, but now catch this. They, I, I think all the disciples were there. I think they kind of elected these four, these two brothers, sets of brothers, to go over to Jesus and ask him, okay, what's coming, Jesus? When's this going to happen? But, but think about and put yourselves in, in their shoes at this point. They're not really concerned about Jesus coming back just at this moment. But they're concerned about the temple. See, it impacted, he had impacted the disciples over the years. It's where they went to give their sacrifices. It was a big part of their lives. So here's where I need to bring in some history that really unfolds and it's impacted. This is, it's impacting us really now today even. But in AD 66, a Roman ruler of that region named Florius he loved his taxes and his money and the cut that he got off of it, and he despised the Jews. And when tax revenues that were supposed to go to Rome weren't up to, up to the standard, what he would do, and this one time what he did, is he went into the temple and he began to take their silver out of the temple and catch that this caused a bit of an uproar. And a minor rebellion broke out. And this was AD 66. And remember, Rome was controlling Israel still at the time. But Florus sent troops into Jerusalem. And those troops killed 3,600 citizens of Jerusalem, Jews. And that set off a bit of an explosion that kept growing. And a full-blown Jewish revolt ended up happening. Now, this had been simmering for a long period of time. But the Jews then, a bunch of Jews, went to a place called Masada. It was overlooking the Dead Sea. And the the Romans had built this fort up overlooking this, this sea. And these zealots, these zealous soldiers, ended up going in there, attacking the Roman army, and they slaughtered the Roman army. They wiped them out. And in the meantime, that event helped gained confidence with the people of Jerusalem and courage. And they responded by turning around and began killing the soldiers that were in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a full-blown rebellion is taking place. So what Rome did is they sent 20,000 troops from Syria. And they ended up going to Jerusalem and starting a siege around Jerusalem that lasted for about six months, but it actually failed. See, what they would do is they'd siege and wait, and hopefully they'd be getting hungry and discouraged, and and then they would rush in. Well, the end result was about 6,000 soldiers of the Roman army were killed, and they ended up backing away. Rome hears about this. Now, Nero is the emperor, and the Senate there, along with Nero, they voted. At that point, they looked at this little little nation of Israel causing so much trouble, and they said this, let's wipe them off the face of the earth. And so Nero sent a man named Vespasian. He was a decorated general, and he was sent to crush the rebellion that was in Judea and Israel. And he ended up 
beating down the people of Galilee and the surrounding areas. And all that he had left was to go to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem, but his method of attack again, Jerusalem had a series of walls. So they just couldn't go in and attack the people there. And so what they did is they just set up camp and they began to wait them out. They cut off all the whole food supply and they just lay siege to the city. Funny thing happens in Rome. Nero dies Vespasian gets called back to Rome. He's appointed the new emperor, and his first act was to appoint his son Titus, a man by the name of Titus, to take over the war in Judea. But the siege continued, and it was working because it caused great difficulty within the city. People were starving. There was no food. People were starving to death, and and they were deeply discouraged. And eventually, with their state weakened, the Romans rush in, they break through the outer walls, and they come and they begin running after the, 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 the soldiers of Israel, and they push them back to the temple. And it was there that was kind of the final stand, and the Romans win that battle and basically annihilate the army of Jerusalem at that point. And it was at that point that they were so, the soldiers were so angry at the Israelites that they decided to destroy the temple. Now, they, many believe that Titus actually did not want them to do that. But the soldiers went ahead, and they slaughtered all the people, and, and a lot of them were put into slavery at that point, and the temple was torn down and burned. But the, that temple being destroyed marked the end of the Jewish state of Israel until 1948. No more Israel. And you understand, it radically changed the way the Jews worshipped. No more place to sacrifice. Well, what they did to accommodate is they began to make up new rituals that were centered around the synagogues and the homes. So it changed the way they worshipped. Now, what about the Christians back then? Because they obviously started in Israel and Judea. And most of them were out of town when this took place. They had been driven out really years years earlier. But the ones that were left actually were written about. Uh, Eusebius, a man by that name, wrote that a revolt as a revolt began. They kind of snuck out of Jerusalem and they fled to Pella, which is a city across the Jordan River. But it could be said that this destruction of the temple drove a wedge more between the Christians and the Jews. And as this prophecy was being fulfilled, understand this revolt, one of the nuances to it is that the, the Christians at that time that had began to follow Jesus, they stayed on the sidelines. They didn't join in with that revolt And the Jews hated him for that. They were traitors. And after 70 AD, the Christians that were still scattered in Israel, all around Israel, at that point they were not permitted to go into any of the synagogues. That's the context that we have here, even as Jesus looks forward to this event. Now let's keep going. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. 
Many will come in my name and saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Now here's where I need to point something out. These verses are often used, when this, this whole section, these few verses, to point to a future coming or a tribulation that's going to be coming for the church in the future, if that's a particular, with the, the pre-trib view. But here's where, i, I got to maybe burst your bubble just a little bit. It, it says, wars and rumors of wars. But he adds these words, do not be alarmed. Okay? And then the next phrase. This must take place, but the end is not yet. See, and the beginnings of just birth pains. See, we look at our culture and what's happening around us, and we think at times that, you know what, oh, it must Jesus must be just right around the corner. And i got to tell you this, which may be a bummer for you, going, it could be another thousand years. It may not be in our lifetime. And as you look forward, look at what Jesus keeps saying. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. Now they is, one of the debates here, is this the disciples, or is this going to be the future within the church? And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you trial or deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whenever it is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. See, here is Jesus. He's pointing, obviously, to the future of the disciples, but again, it's this idea of two lenses, two telescopes. Does he go beyond the disciples? Is it going beyond to the church today? So that's the pondering that we have to ponder and really try to figure out. But I do believe this, that, that the words that are spoken by Jesus, it applied to disciples as well. It, it must have, because we'll see that a lot of it really did come true. So you kind of go, okay, Ken, you're just leaving me confused. And, and that's probably my goal a little bit today is to leave you confused that you're going to have to study on your own just a little bit more and come up with your own thinking on this. But look at verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and the children arise against his parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So is this the shorter telescope? Or is this the longer one to a different time? Is this the rapture, if, if that's where you're at in pre-trib, tribulation? But understand this, if you're post-millennial or you're amillennial, this would say that the disciples, this was pointed only for to the disciples. 
And they would say that the plain meaning is the plain meaning. So here's where I, I got to say this. We have to be careful by becoming dogmatic and just saying that our view is the right view and everybody else is heretical. I think we need to be very careful that. But if you've done any study into this, you'll, it, it's very possible that the, that the whole idea that um, the abomination of desolation could be to a future event. Uh, there's going to be a seven-year seven peace treaty that's going to be signed between, it says, Israel and the world, a world ruler, the man of the lawlessness or the Antichrist. But even here, I want to jump back and be fair because Luke defines this term a little bit to some degree. Listen, I don't have it on the screen, Luke 21, 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So you understand that is going on. It will be going on for the disciples. He's describing the armies that are going to come around Jerusalem. But let me keep going. Look at verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Again, the question, is that which I just read, was it for the disciples or is that for a future time? Now here's where I got to point, historically, I got to be fair and point something out here. I, again, I'm pre-trib, rapture pre-trib, and, and that's really, for the most part, where our denomination stands. But in fairness, you understand there was about 1.1 million Jews who died during this time period over these few years. And it was mostly through starvation. See, many people, if a different view would claim this, this is the famines that it's talking about here. See, in fairness to them, I go, that's a possibility. And Jesus here predicted the woes to those who are nursing. Well, it's interesting because history writes of a very painful picture even back then. History writes that women were so hungry in Jerusalem that they were killing their children and eating them. And children with older parents were killing their parents and using them for food. Do you see the tension? So you understand why I point these challenges out. And, and here's the piece as to why I want to be fair and, and really be honest in this because it doesn't pay to break fellowship over our end times view. Because I suspect even in this room here today, a number of you believe differently than me. And I want to go, that's okay. And I want to be careful so that we don't throw mud at people going, your view is heretical. You know, somehow the end times, matter of fact, when you go on the internet, it, it just kind of disgusts me at times because somehow the end times raises this right to be unloving and ungracious, the way that things are being said on there and how they're going after each other's views. But here's, I think, the point that we miss. Regardless of which view that we have at the end of time, 
The real issue is this. Christ is coming back. And all the views believe that. And without his return, without his return, there will be no hope for the world if he does not come back. Folks, the real issue in the end times as we look at what's going to happen in the future, the real issue is Jesus. Jesus. Let me keep reading, though, in light of that. Look at how it goes, verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as to not have been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Again, I would think that that's way out there. But And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Now here's where, again, I've got I to put up, jump ahead just, just to make this statement. Look at verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Is that generation future that are in that tribulation? Or is it the disciples? These things have to take place. See, and we've got to catch this. I don't think he's trying to speak over their heads. But he's, I, I think, in, in part, he's dealing with their Stuff that's going to happen in their lives in the immediate future, in their generation, before they died. See, I think Jesus got it right. The temple was destroyed. History tells us that in the lifetime of the disciples. But, but he still mixed in the prediction that there's going to be something, his return later on. See, in the midst of his prediction of the destruction of the temple, Jesus kind of jumps in and said, oh yeah, guys, I'm going to come back again at some point. So I, I think the challenge is we look at a chapter like this and we kind of leave our heads, you know, scratching, leave scratching our heads and go, okay, what is it? That's where you're going to need to dig in. Okay, I'm not going to tell you and walk through this. It would take us months to walk through this in a real systematic way. But here's the other piece for us I think that we need to remember. We think like the Greeks. Western culture like ours is is a Greek mentality in the way we think. We go, if A, then B, then C. We're taught that way in school. But understand Jewish thought. They used at times circular thinking. That wasn't linear like we think. If you think back over and over again, the prophets would be talking to a group of people and they're saying, they're ju- this is what's going on right now. If you don't turn, if you don't obey, if you don't repent, right at the moment. And then all of a sudden, the prophet would all of a sudden go, speak about the Messiah coming. He'd throw in this prophecy that's looking way out there. And you go, did he just have an ADD moment? At that point where... 
he just went off on a tangent? No, that was more, understand, the Jewish way of thinking, they can do that, and it's okay. They don't have an issue with it. And we tend, tend to think that we, we struggle because we're so linear in our thinking. But I think it raises, folks, a, a critical question for us. And I want to just kind of end here today with, look at the question on the screen. Why did Jesus choose this moment in time to explain the second coming in conjunction with the destruction of, the, of Israel? So I'm coming back, but guys, this temple, it's going down. And, and here's where I think the part of the answer is. And it's really... Again, point number two, Jesus was emphasizing to disciples and to us the radical sufficiency and the consequences of the cross. This was some intense symbolism that was directed at his disciples. The destruction of the temple reminded them that a radical change is coming as it come be, for the issue of God relating to man and understanding the God that made this universe and how it connects to man. So you don't have this on the notes, but I want to just point out three aspects of symbolism here with the temple being destroyed. The first one is this, the worship of God is no longer centered in a place or a structure. The glory of God is no longer centered at a structure like it was back then with that temple in the Holy of Holies. For us now, where two or more people gather, God is in their midst. Now, let me give you a little secret of mine. I don't think I've ever said this before up here. I do not refer to this gathering, this place, this room as a sanctuary. It's an auditorium. It's a place of worship. It is not a sanctuary. Theologically, it is not a sanctuary. God doesn't dwell in a building anymore. The temple was the last one where God dwelt. And the Romans burned it down. You understand what it means is that, folks, the sanctuary where God dwells, if you know Jesus as your Savior, it's in here. This is the new temple of the Holy Spirit. If you know him. Let me give you a second one. The destruction of the temple destroyed forever. Any symbolism of need for sacrifices to atone for our sins. It destroyed forever the need for sacrifices. When that altar got destroyed, it ended. Something ended. See, one cannot today somehow appease God by bringing God something or doing something for God or doing a certain sacrifice for Him. For now, because of Jesus Christ, it has been done. No more sacrifices. The destruction of the temple recognized it was a type of judgment on those 
religious leaders in Jerusalem because they rejected the true sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No longer in a temple. See, the temple represented the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God hung out. But see, even back then, there was a problem, do you realize, with the Holy of Holies? The average person couldn't go there. It had to be certain priests that would go there. And there was veils and walls that separated the average person from the presence of God. And folks, no longer does that exist. The temple is gone. It's torn away. Legend actually has it that some of the soldiers, they grabbed some of that curtain within the Holy of Holies and that they took it back and Titus used it in his house for curtains in his house. Whether it's true or not, they don't quite know. But some of the early writings indicate that. So it was done. One more, number three. Everything that the temple represented is now found in Jesus. See, this is more than just an event in history that the temple, the bullies came in from Rome and they went and they tore down this building. We read it like it's just history. And I go, that's really not accurate. Understand this, God was orchestrating human history to uphold the claims of his son. The Father is declaring that now Jesus is enthroned. The temple is dethroned and brought down. No more temple, no more bringing of a sacrifice. Now you go to Jesus who sits on the throne. I thought of Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. He's the one that we worship. Now let me end with this. We want to always ask the question when it comes to the end times as to when. When is the end times going to come? And I think this. I think it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. See, he makes it clear that if you keep focusing on the when, you're going to get misled and ultimately deceived by the people that are trying to trick you out there. And through history, that has already happened. Hal Lindsey, growing up, growing up at my time period, it was going to come at... And no, everybody got worked up. See, I, I think the challenge is not when, but the issue is who. This whole chapter is not so much about when, but about the who. It's Jesus. Do you understand? No more temple. We now get to individually and corporately go to the throne of God. See, it's not when. It's it's who. It's God. It's Christ. That's the issue. And my question, then it comes back to this. Who is Jesus to you? What does he mean in your life? 
you would have been sitting there with the disciples, would he have been the one that you wanted to follow, to listen to, to be with? See, Jesus, yeah, he was telling them, guys, I'm coming back. And you're going to go through some really hard stuff, which they did. And you recognize that there was only one disciple that didn't get martyred. That was John. And he, he, he had been put in boiling oil as well. And he died an old man. That was the only one. But the rest of them beheaded or killed or flogged to death. But see, for us, who is Jesus to us here today? Is he our Lord? Is he our Savior? Is he our friend? Do we follow him? And we trust that God, the Father, has the time in his hands and we don't worry about the end, but we be prepared. That's where we're going to go next week. But here's what I'd like to do. Let's just stand and close and just recognize even us being able to stand and pray is so different than the Holy of Holies. We actually can go into the presence of God and pray to God right now and meet him. And, and, and even while I'm praying, maybe there's a need in, that you, in your life right now, and I say this, go into the presence of God and talk to him about that need. Even while I'm praying, you can do that. The temple's gone. We get to go to God for ourselves. Let's do that.